0: Uh, this event is, being o- is organized by the UCL Economic, uh, oh, sorry,
1: economic, European Institute. It's the <laughs> Stopping. Yeah, no, no, no accident there. <laughs> uh, is organized by the UCL um, European Institute and School of Slavonic East European Studies. Now, many of you may not know what is the School of Slavonic East European Studies. Well, you may be surprised. We are now for more than 10 years department of UCL. Uh, we have around 870 students. Uh, Uh, We're offering BA, MA, PhD degrees in literature, culture, history, politics, and economics of this part of the world. And knowing that, probably I guess you are not surprised that I'm extremely pleased, delighted today to welcome two intellectuals, very prominent figures from that part of the world. Uh, We have a a great privilege to have with us uh, Slavoj Žižek, who is probably one of the, well, the most prominent an intellectual from that part of of the world. And I'm very pleased that he has joined forces today with a young generation, with Srečko Horvat author and philosopher from Croatia, on this exciting new project book, Uh, What Does Europe Want? I read it and I (coughs) laughed even sometimes. And you will understand when you read the book why when you laugh, why that is a sign that the situation is very, very very serious. Uh, and we will find it out uh, uh, tonight. And uh, uh, the event tonight will be uh, chaired by uh, Bojan Aleksov, who is our lecturer in history and director of the Center for Southeast European Studies. So, Bojan, the floor is yours. Thank you. Uh,
2: ladies and gentlemen, dear friends, good evening. Ladies gospodo gentlemen, dear friends, good You also, you already heard my name. I teach Balkan history, and that's why this use of provocation, and uh, I also chair our Balkan center at CIS, and we organize all sorts of events, and you can join our mailing list and come to one of these events like, like this one. And tonight it's a special pleasure for me to talk about Europe in this particular session and with these guests. And we will also give you the opportunity to uh, to raise questions in the second half of this event, which is triggered by the appearance of this book. Uh, let me just clarify that the Europe in the title of this book and, and in our in our events, refers not to Europe as a whole, but to uh, to the European Union project, which is in crisis and which uh, over what it wants. Right? And and why it's my pleasure? It's because we are, in a way, European outsiders first. As you heard, CIS is the School of Slavonic and East European Studies. And our guests here uh, at the panel, like me, were born uh, in this country which is no more, which is a failed project that Europe or the European Union needs always to bear in mind. So my first question, and I want to give speakers uh, uh, more time. So My first question goes out to Srečko who lives uh, in Croatia which recently joined the EU in the midst of its most uh, serious crisis since its inception I would say. So I want to ask Srečko uh, about these uh, uh, circumstances and the celebration of Croatia entering the, the project in crisis. Was there any
3: reason to celebrate? Uh, first of all, uh, hello and uh, thanks uh, to Bojan and thanks to UCL for hosting and organizing this event. Uh, yesterday when I arrived from actually Sarajevo where, where I live currently for the next month, uh, I just read in the newspaper that the Monty Python reunited and they, they, they sold out in 43.5 seconds. This was sold out in two days uh, and I'm not sure if we will be like the Monty Python but you know my English is very bad, Boans is a bit better and Slavic has of course the GJK accent so we are some sort of multi-Python show in a way. You have Croatia, Serbia and Slovenia and we will do our best tonight. <laughs> anyway, when you ask me about Croatia's entrance to the, to the European Union, I am spontaneously reminded of at the circus, you know, uh, Chico Marx gave uh, very good advice to his friend and he says uh, whenever you have a business trouble, uh, you should get a lawyer. Then you will have more business trouble but at least you will have a lawyer. And I think the same goes for Croatia's entrance to the European Union. Whenever you have business trouble, join the European Union. uh, Then you will have even more business trouble, but at least you will be part of the the European Union. Uh, Of course, I will leave more jokes uh, to Slavoj uh, or or not, but we will see. Uh, But this brings me actually to one of the biggest problems, uh, not only of the European Union, but also Croatia. Uh, According to Eurostat, uh, today research from August 2013, this year, two months ago, uh, the rate of unemployment among young persons is in European Union 5.5 million Uh, and you probably know who is the first country, it's of course Greece with 61.5%, the second is of course Spain with 56% and do you know who's who's the third country in this Uh, record it's Croatia, it's 52 percent. So actually Croatia didn't join as they tried to convince us the center of the European Union, a prosperous community with lots of jobs and and opportunities and so on Uh, but Croatia actually joined uh, the PIGS you know so they will have to invent another name not the PIGS not the gypsy but but something else and uh, this reminded me uh, of another joke uh, told by our common friend uh, Kostas Duzinas. Uh, who recently when we were at a debate uh, in London as well uh, told us this famous joke. It was famous in Serbia as well at one point of time but uh, now the place where it's happening is Greece. Uh, So a tourist comes uh, to the Athens airport and uh, the control officer who asks his passport uh, asks him what is your nationality? The tourist replies German and the officer asks him occupation? No, 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 holidays. So, you know what, what this joke tells us about Croatia's entrance to, to the European Union, it's actually a bit sad because, you know, the Germans and the Troika and the European Commission can really be on holidays when you have the Croatian government uh, because the Croatian government is doing the job of the European Commission and the Troika instead of them without the pressure. I will, I will just give you one example and then I will pass the floor. Uh, so, recently, uh, when Margaret Thatcher died, a few days after the death of the Iron Lady, a famous Croatian economist who was the former uh, Minister of Finance uh, during uh, Tudjman's government uh, published an article echoing the famous Heideggerian motto uh, No no, God can only, only a God can save us now. You know his title wasn't only a God can save us now, but the title of the, of the article was Only Margaret Thatcher can save Croatia. Uh, and in the article uh, he, he gave a very detailed plan, you can find it on the internet and Google Translate and so on and you can even find a, a very nice photo, you have Tudjman, you have this guy and you have Margaret Thatcher drinking champagne together.
4: Is it a photo montage? Or uh, no, it's a real photo. Yeah.
3: And you know, the, 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 it, it was Borislav Skegro, and, and the, minister, the former minister uh, said at one point of time, he said to the Iron Lady, uh, you know many people in Croatia criticize me of being a Thatcherist, uh, what shall I do? And you know what the Iron Lady replied, she said, oh, that's a clear sign you're doing a good job, just continue with the job. And uh, that was 98 and Margaret Thatcher was in Croatia because she got a very rare honorary degree in Croatia, which no one else gets in Croatia for some reason and Slava was there for seven times and uh, (laughs) many other intellectuals, but they never got an honorary degree, but you have Margaret Thatcher getting an honorary degree. So, what he said in this article, which is not an obituary but actually a panegyric, he said what we have to do in Croatia is to privatize more, Uh, we have have to privatize everything. And uh, what happened just one month ago, and it's irony or I don't know how to call it, Uh, it's not farce, it's tragedy actually, Uh, On the day of independence of Croatia in October, the Croatian government announced the second round of privatizations in Croatia. So as you probably know, during the the first round of privatizations in the so-called transition period, they privatized uh, the the Croatian banks. Currently 95% of the banks in Croatia are not Croatian anymore. They are Austrian, Italian, Spanish, French, German banks. Uh, they privatized the telecommunications, which is now Deutsche Telekom, uh, and so on and so on. On, on the day of independence, and he, here I will soon finish, uh, they announced the second and probably the final, uh, the final program of privatization. Uh, they said they will privatize four ports in Croatia. They said they will privatize the Croatian post. They said they will privatize the Croatian lottery, and they said they will privatize uh, the Croatian airlines. Uh, so what you? And, a few days ago they said they will, uh, they will privatize Croatian water. So, what I wanted to say is actually, and of course this is no different than Greece or than Spain or, or any other countries from the periphery. Uh, I see a hand there, but I don't know what you want to add. <laughs> Aha, there is more privatization coming in the room or what. I hope you want not privatize something or...
4: They, they actually look like people who got get I know, I you Anyway, to conclude, what
3: I wanted to say by all of this and by the joke is that the Troika doesn't have to do anything in Croatia. The Croatian government is doing the job without pressure, so I see Brandt has uh, is a bit embarrassed or what?
2: No, I, I, I didn't intend to uh, interfere in, in your talks, but when you spoke about um, high rate of unemployment um, among european union youth and, and here i am inspired by so many young and future unemployed people from <laughs> from, from, from the european union and uh, and knowing how serious seriously affecting one's health is unemployment and I really hope that someone at the Hague (coughs) tribunal or whatever international tribunal raises the charge uh, against European Union uh, because of uh, uh, high unemployment rate and to introduce as a crime and I want to propose this word I haven't heard anyone uh, proposing it yet, of Juventusid?
3: That's Juventus, when you kill Juventus. Yeah, when you kill
2: the youth. youth, Yeah, Yeah, so I, you know, as they had uh, feminicide and genocide and so on, so Juventus or Juventicide, in in English. Uh, But I want to go next. Juventus, Juventus, Juventus. I don't know what is the definition. Žižek might know. What? Juventus is uh, uh, juventicide. Am I right to propose this word? Well,
4: no, I'm a primitive from Balkan. I don't know this language. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm
2: no, but uh, let me extend yeah. the question because you are from the Balkans and from Slovenia, which now
4: boosts. Uh, Although every Slovene will tell you, no, it's just out of Slovenia that Balkan begins, you know? We are still civilization. You can go to a Slovene river, Krka, and say, out there it's Balkan. They rape women, they dance, we are dancers, well, we are a civilization. He is Balkan. Yes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> you are now more than a, almost a decade in the EU.
2: Yes. And Slovenia is uh, experiencing <coughs> serious uh, economic crisis. And some say it is because Slovenia changed the position in this new constellation from being a privileged, most Mm. developed uh, part of uh, of Yugoslavia to the periphery of EU. Would you agree?
4: Good question. First, I don't want to bluff too much, more than necessary, so I cannot give you a precise answer here. The way I see it is, I wouldn't put, this is, I'm improvising now. I would intend not to put the blame on just European Union. I would say that the very situation which was in the early 90s, where we were boasting, like the big motto of left and right, was give us, you know, like Hitler said in thirty three, give us four years and you will have no employment. Our motto was give us four years and we will be Switzerland, another Switzerland. We were, we were so sure of ourselves economically and so on, that the whole 90s and beginning of, and the first five years of the 21st century were spent in this arrogance, like we are on the top, we don't have to worry. And then all of a sudden we discovered that we missed the train. So again, I think in Slovenia it's a specific crisis, it's even, I would say, worse than usually in European Union. The second thing I want to say, which may sound problematic, especially from some people in Slovenia, (laughs) I think that this political ideological situation is so confused that, like, even if you try to formulate some genuinely leftist project, it gets lost. As some of you maybe know, in the In the last winter, not this one, but 2012-13, there was a large protest movement in Slovenia, tens of thousands sometimes on the street and so on. But I think the way it turned out, it was a model of how to screw things up. First, (coughs) uh, the problem was, and again, I warn you, now I'm saying something that most of my Slovene friends would not agree with me. I think it was a model of what Jean Claude Milner, with whom I otherwise don't agree, would have called the revolt of the salaried bourgeoisie. That is to say, when real, real horrors happened earlier in Slovenia, already five years ago and more, tens of thousands of textile and other workers losing their jobs, real despair, there was no big fuss. You know. Oh, and some terrible things happened. For example, uh, workers from ex-Yugoslav republics all of a sudden not only lost their jobs, but were not paid for over half a year back salaries. And one of the replies of the Slovene state was, well, you no longer have a job, so you have to leave Slovenia. And, uh, I mean, it was a scandal. Then, okay, a little bit of solidarity, marginal from some trade unions, but nothing happened. Then. When, half a year, a little bit more ago, the government announced some, and I'm not in no way defending the government, I'm just <coughs> trying to build the contrast, relatively, <coughs> not justified, but relatively moderate austerity measures, like, you no, know, the salaries of state employees will not raise with inflation, but less, and so on, and so on. There was, all of a sudden, a big outcry. Where, where were all these people when tens of thousands were suffering uh, before? So this revolt, so-called revolt, I think, as many of my Slovene friends noticed, It wasn't a genuine revolt of despair. It was more like a kind of a carnival, you know. Saturday, uh, Sunday evening, people gathered, some folk, uh, pop songs, they danced and so on. And then three, four hours later, well, they went home because they had a nice afternoon, you know. What was lacking was that genuine despair that you can find uh, in Greece, in Spain and so on and so on. And what makes me really sad although I'm even a personal enemy of the right-wing government which was at that time in power, was that they were, these protesters, protesting measures and they succeeded in that the right-wing government, headed by Yanis Jansha uh, was deposed and there was a new, some people call it, I wouldn't center, left government which took over, which is now, if anything, imposing even tougher neoliberal and so on, whatever we call them, measures, but protests practically stopped. So what I think, and this is the original scene, for this I am very not popular to claim, is that in Slovenia protesters were co-opted and manipulated by what is called in Slovenia the official center-left, which is simply mostly the old communist nomenclatura and so on, they present themselves as leftists, but they have absolutely no, no vision of anything that in any meaningful term it's even worse than your Croat so-called left, which is in power now. For example, when one of the representatives of this left was asked in what sense you are a leftist, when you are a mega-rich capitalist, he said, I have a positive opinion of partisan strike. He explicitly said that the main line which divides left from from right in Slovenia is how you relate to World War II. Are you for communist partisans or not? Now, I have no problem with this, but it's a pretty sad thing if in an ongoing crisis, now here, you know, uh, the old conflict remains the main uh, main point of division. We do have now some groups, young people, intellectuals, even wider circles, elaborating a project of something they call democratic socialism, but for reasons that I will not go into now, I also don't give too too much of a hope to that. But, okay, a little bit more if I can go on. Uh, the first thing I would have said more generally, because the situation is very complex, the joke you quoted, that Marx brothers you no, know, you know that I used it when Slovenia proclaimed independence, exactly in the same way it was published in Ladina at that point, dissident journal. My joke was... Do you have a problem, proclaim independence, then you will have even more problems, but you will have your independence to fight for and so on and so on, <laughs> I did it the same. Although, uh, you mean this is already one division here. Now I may disappoint you. I'm not part of those nostalgic leftists who claim the self-management Yugoslav socialism was nonetheless something different, we should mourn its loss, and so on, and so on, and the usual argument is, did you see, the moment we broke with socialism, we got uh, the terrible war of the 90s, and so on, and so on, no, I'm sorry, this is not my opinion, because I claim that uh, throughout already the 70s and then 80s, Yugoslavia had hyperinflation, mega crisis which was again a specific Yugoslav crisis. Western Europe was not in crisis in such a crisis. Not even Eastern Europe. And so I this is the fundamentally different reading. For some of my leftist friends uh, the catastrophe was the disintegration of Yugoslavia. I claim no, the disintegration of Yugoslavia towards which I was Indifferent. I didn't take sides. But my point is that the disintegration of Yugoslavia was, in a way, the moment of truth. Well, all contradictions, all that was false in the previous Titoist regime exploded. So I don't find any cause for any cause for. For, uh, for fascination, this Western fascination with, oh my god, it was something specific, Yugoslav Selmenov, of course it was a little bit better at the level of personal freedoms and so on and so on, but, but it ended of internal, strong internal contradictions. Second thing I want to say is that uh, you know, I would just like to add one or two general remarks concerning the situation of Europe today. Uh, the sad thing for me is that, and it's important to note this, the sad thing for me is that, uh, as I always repeat, that European elite is losing its ability to to rule even. You know, when I was young, we leftists had this dream that there is some mysterious capitalist central committee meeting once a year somewhere between Washington and Wall Street and deciding everything, running things, where I almost have a nostalgia for that time. Maybe Europe. The problem is that we don't have it. The problem is what? That uh, the reaction of Europe to crisis, so-called austerity program, I claim it's not that, as they try to present it to us, they, powers and Brussels, that it's a necessary bitter pill to swallow to get better. No, I think it's a totally irrational politics. It obviously doesn't work. Take the case of Greece. Do you know that when austerity was imposed on Greece around five years ago, their debt was 120 billions. Now, five years later, with more than enough time to see the results, the Greek production fell for, I think, about 30%. I don't know, everything went wrong, but the debt is now 180 billions. So, even if I were to be a Western enlightened capitalist, to put it in this way, I I would have said, wait a minute, through austerity I will not get back any of my money and so on. I mean, it's madness. And generally, this austerity politics, if you ask me, this is not rational politics, because politics doesn't work like that. Austerity politics, I claim, is effectively a kind of superstitious reaction, like Suddenly there is a crisis, things go bad, and then you know you have this automatic guilt feeling reaction. Oh my god, we, we, we must have done something wrong, so why don't we punish ourselves, you know. We must suffer a little bit to get better, so let's impose austerity, to give you an extremely vulgar metaphor, which is accurate here I think. Austerity politics of course in some abstract sense may be true, but it's true in the same sense in which if you are, let us say, or I am, okay, overweight, someone would have told me, you know, the safest way to lose weight if you shit more than you eat. I mean, of course, in some abstract way it's true, no? But I wonder if it really works as politics, you know. the, the point, the point, you know, uh, uh, like, uh, you know, here again, the point, austerity in itself, even from the standpoint of capitalist reproduction doesn't achieve anything. The point, even from rational capitalist politics, is to combine maybe some austerity with some other measures to to set in motion production and so on and so on. But this is curiously lacking in all our country. We somehow expect that our suffering is a sign that we authentically feel guilty, and somehow, if the big other god, market, whoever, we see that we really suffer, things will somehow go better. I mean, there is, I don't know how in Croatia, and Slovenia, there is absolutely no vision, no elementary vision, which would include austerity measures as part of some relatively rational plan or whatever, or whatever. No, I think we are really caught in this terrible cycle. Another element of irrationality and a true triumph of ideology today. I mean, everybody knows that ideology rules today. Hollywood knows it. Can you name me one big blockbuster, recent ones, which is not about class struggle. Elysium, pure class struggle. Hunger Games, pure class struggle. My God, let's just follow Hollywood. Hollywood knows that. There is class struggle here, what our politicians don't know. So what I want to say is that even in Slovenia now, we, are, we have signs of the same thing that happened in the United States, that as the result of this crisis, partisans of Ayn Rand, you know Ayn Rand, the greatest <laughs> Liberal Award, are uh, prospering. But are they crazy? Don't they know that the meltdown of 2008 was not, as they are trying to convince us because we spent too much and so on, it was exactly the opposite. Alan Greenspan, you know who he was? He was a card-carrying objectivist, a rent follower. It was precisely the crisis of Randian liberal politics that caused And it's incredible how now they put the blame on it. You know, it wasn't that because some crazy nuts in in Washington were uh, too much to the liberal left, spending too much money for healthcare. It wasn't that which caused the crisis. It was exactly the opposite. And this demonstrates the strength of ideology, of how Now precisely those who were guilty for the crisis are now selling again their own ideology as as solution. Uh, The more worrying thing is the general shift to the right out of the democratic consensus that defined uh, Europe, at least Western Europe, after World War II. Which was what? Which was anti-fascist unity. It was a kind of unwritten, unwritten commitment, radical neo-fascist right is out. Okay, because we are a free society, blah, blah, we can tolerate them as a party, but they should not be allowed to govern. This was clear. Now it's no longer clear. You can notice it. In Italy, it began where neo-fascists became gov- part of government. In Austria, Haider, and so on. It looks that uh, the thing we go in the same direction in France, in other countries, and so on, and so on. So it's this legitimization of extreme right, and the idea, the way it's usually formulated is that we have to balance the situation. Why condemn only fascist crimes? Why not also condemn the symmetrical communist crimes, but I claim, I generally don't accept it, but even if you accept it, you can immediately see how they treat. For example, in Hungary, the government now corrected the old law which prohibits uh, totalitarian fascist propaganda. They wanted to balance it, but Wait a minute, how did, did they do it? They didn't say fascist as well as communist propaganda symbols are prohibited. They said Nazi and communist propaganda. And this distinction is crucial. It's the new story of the right wing, European right, where they are ready to sacrifice Nazism. It's a little bit difficult to deal with that. But the hidden goal is then to rehabilitate Franco, like Franco, great guy, he kept Spain out of World War II, big humanitarian and so on. They even tried to rehabilitate Mussolini, like he did it pretty well, it was just a tragic mistake that in 39, whatever, he joined Hitler and so on. You know, uh, so again, this, this shift changes the changes changes all the coordinates. Because here, if you don't believe me, I will quote you a guy who certainly was no communist, uh, uh, Christopher Hitchens. He showed in a wonderful way how with all the crimes committed under Stalin, there is one thing that always differentiated communism from Nazism. From the very beginning, from Leninstein, communism had strong internal critics. They always had these problems. Trotsky, democratic, workers, opposition, whatever. So the tension, there was all the time this feeling in communist project that something went terribly wrong with Stalinism. What we tend to forget is that we didn't have to wait for Solzhenitsyn to know about uh, Stalinist crimes. Way back in the thirties dissident communists were telling, were not only Totskists, also others were telling in detail the story. The logic is totally different with fascism and Nazism. There were people who were accusing Stalin of betraying true principles of communism. They may, they were naive, I know, but at least they were there. Sorry, but I don't remember any movement in Germany where Nazis would have accused Hitler of betraying the true principle of na- Nazism and so on. You know, communism was a fail, but it was a failed tragic project. It was a liberation project going terribly going wrong. Which is why I think we are right when we say communist symbols shouldn't be treated in the same way as fascist symbols, you know, like what the European right-wingers are saying today. If we prohibit swastika, let's also prohibit Red Star. No, sorry, because under the name of Red Star, there were nonetheless authentic dissident critical movements going on. I'm not aware of any such movement under the other side. Another thing, I will stop slowly, Uh, like life goes on, you know, with me talking, yes. Uh, this rehabilitation of uh, liberalism goes hand in hand with systematic devaluation of democracy. People accuse me of being non-democratic, but, but just re- like already 10 years ago, a guy called, I forgot the, the Christian names, Titian at that point, I think boss of Bundesbank or whatever, said something wonderful, wonderful in a terrifying way of course. He said, that we, politicians, and those who make decisions, we are, fo- we are confronted with two democratic processes. On the one hand, there is the electoral democratic process. Every four years, people vote, but people are naive, they can be uh, victims, of, uh, victims of demagogy, we shouldn't trust this democratic process too much. But there is another permanent democratic process going on, and it's called stock market. Where we get all the time information, it's much more open, it's out of control and so on, and we should listen to this process much more. That is to say, are we aware that this is not just a joke, but that uh, systematically democracy in any meaningful way is neutralized? It's simply, and they are always, you just have to listen to people from Brussels, in Italy, in Frankfurt, how they are saying, now times are serious, which means people are not to be trusted, ordinary people. We shouldn't trust democracy, now it's for the serious, experts should decide, and so on, and so on. And I'm cynical, I would even say, okay, if we really have experts, but we don't have them, I simply don't trust the European elite Today, I think it's absolutely clear, even in the interest, and that's what horrifies me, of let's call it naively enlightened capitalism, that a totally different strategy would have been necessary. I don't idealize China, but do you know why, for example, why China survived at least the first immediately I stop?
2: Can we wait with China because I want to connect to this talk about mm. ideology okay, perfect, and okay, speak about...
0: You are uh, ignoring one billion people. Okay, we wait.
3: And then this big,
2: they call it identity or cultural crisis, which is reflected in the discussions and policies on migration or on yeah, yeah. Islam. Uh, we've seen the catastrophe of Lampedusa.
4: Ah, later I want to talk yes, about it. But <laughs> Heavy <laughs> provocation, yeah, I warn yeah.
2: You said it as well. According to many, EU is bracing for the triumph of the right wing. Uh, or extreme right-wing
4: forces in the next. Uh, I'm sorry to interrupt government. you. I'm more of a pessimist here. Le Pen said a wonderful, terrifying thing when he explained one of his electoral losses, and he said I lost because I won. They will say I lost because nonetheless, my topic was accepted by the mainstream parties. You know? Yes. Like they said, okay, we don't want to do it in a barbaric way like Le Pen, but in a softer way they proclaimed that Le Pen is addressing true problems, immigrants. My fear is that the right will win, extreme right, and we will not even notice it. Because it will be part of the mainstream. But
2: I'm, I'm Sorry. Here, uh, I, I share your opinion, and I want to ask you exactly because you come from Croatia and Slovenia, and know, from, from Europe, Europe and from and Balkan. And you mentioned, you mentioned Hungary. Yeah. And you mentioned Greece, <laughs> and, uh, and somehow I, uh, I have a feeling that these peripheral countries are more vulnerable to polarizations and to uh, abuses in these identity debates and we are witnessing it now with nationalist incidents in Croatia with this uh, fake referendum on, on gay marriages and so on and we've seen this scenario unfolding already in Hungary destroying hungarian society <laughs> democratic institutions uh, and uh, damaging the economy and what is uh, what is your view and do you agree that uh, these newcomers or peripheral countries are more vulnerable to these ideological <laughs> uh, and identity crises and manipulation
3: <clears throat> I'll come back to, to, to several Slavoist points, especially about the new movements and uh, also the... Ukraine, yeah, I, only I, will speak, I will speak also about Croatia and other countries, but uh, what is interesting, but I will come back to that is also the line of demarcation partisans mm. on the one hand, and the Ustašas yeah, yeah. on the other hand, but what... I'll start, I'll start by, by, by a recent annual report by the <clears> European <throat> Commission, uh, it was published, I think, one month ago. Uh, so they published a report on the enlargement and the neighbouring countries of the European Union, namely, namely six Balkan countries, including Iceland and Turkey. And you know why it's interesting? Because they name all the problems of all our countries. So you have Kosovo. The biggest problem in Kosovo is corruption. You have Serbia. The biggest problem of Serbia uh, is, of course corruption as well, but also the, the attitude toward sexual minorities. Uh, then you have uh, Turkey, the biggest problem the European Commission says of Turkey uh, is police brutality on, on Taksim Square and the lack of democratization and what my proposal is just to turn it around and to apply these measures of the European Commission to Europe itself. So, if we speak about corruption, why why wouldn't we speak about Christian Wolff who had to resign because of a corruption affair, why wouldn't we speak about, and I'll come back right now to your question, why wouldn't we speak about uh, Jacques Chirac, if we speak about police brutality at Taxi Square, why don't we speak about uh, the Genoa protests, why don't we, we could Mm -hmm. spend the whole night here naming. All the police brutality at all the protests from Spain, Greece, Portugal, even Croatia, and so on. Uh, but when you ask me, aren't the, the peripheral countries more vulnerable uh, to right wing extremism, if I understood it right, I would say, spontaneously, I would say yes. But if you look closer, I would say no. Uh, If we speak about the attitude towards sexual minorities uh, in Serbia, then we must unfortunately mention uh, that in France, in Paris, we had hundreds of thousands of people protesting against gay gay marriage. My country, Croatia, is now part of the European Union, so you know you have the European Commission criticizing Serbia because of their attitude towards sexual minorities, but you have a part of the European Union, that's my country and I don't say it proudly, which in three or four days will have a referendum uh, against gay marriages. So which which, uh, what they try to do is probably they will win. The probably they will win. That's important to to add because there will probably come another referendum. What is important to say that in Croatia we had only two referendums. The first referendum, Slavoj remembers it very well. Me not so much because uh, I'm much younger. That was the referendum for independence after the collapse of Yugoslavia. The second referendum, and here is Croatia, the new record holder. It has only uh, 40 43 percent of turnout, that was the the referendum for the entrance to the European Union. So can you imagine, you had two very important referendums. The first was the referendum for independence. The second was the referendum uh, for the entrance of the European Union. Now in my country we have a, a, a third referendum, it's a referendum Uh, against gay marriages. At the same week that the the Croatian government uh, uh, has a new uh, labor uh, labor law and so on, you have austerity measures and so on and so on. And what will come now and here here I come back to to something where we maybe uh, finally, or we will just act like the Monty Python where we uh, disagree, is that after the referendum uh, against gay marriages, you will have probably a new referendum and it's a referendum against Kyrillic. Uh, as you probably know know, know, uh, the the Serbs that's the letter of the Serbs you know it's not like our letter, <laughs> but whatever. But also the Croatian letter, if you go back to history, used Kyrillik. And then you have, of course, uh, the city of Vukovar, uh, which was, uh, beside Dubrovnik and Sarajevo and Mostar and some other cities, uh, the most destroyed city mm. during the war. And what they're doing now is actually they want uh, to change the constitution that uh, only if a minority has more than 50%, uh, they
0: can have their letter.
3: <laughs> can, 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 you, you can hear the paradox of it. If you have more than 50%, then you, of course you're not the minority anymore. You're the majority. So what they are doing now is they're collecting signatures in Konzum, and that's one of the richest guys in Croatia, whose surname is incidental. You're not Podolich todo rich, Uh, they're collecting signatures uh, in the shopping malls. What they did for the referendum against gay marriages, they collected signatures in churches. So what you have in Croatia, and here I will slightly disagree, but in the end we will agree, I think, is that, you know, two years ago I would be the first who would say, you know, nationalism and all this story is over, it won't happen again, and we have to focus ourselves on political economy. And now I would of course say, yes, we have to focus ourselves on political economy, But unfortunately, I think the 90s in ex-Yugoslavia are coming back and we we really have to to put this line of demarcation between, not partisans, but between the left and between the right wing. And we cannot just focus on political economy. I think now in Croatia it's even, it's getting worse than than in Greece uh, because it's illegal okay the golden dawn is yeah, a yeah. party and so on and uh, but in croatia you will have two referendums and i think it's a real right-wing uh turn uh, second point uh, about the movements uh, yes i completely agree with, with you when you say but, but i only
4: talked about slovenia yes yes like, yes. but i also
3: agree with this if you speak about croatia you know before uh, before slovenia and uh, I convinced you to support the protests uh, because uh, at one point of time they were really uh, really going somewhere. Uh, uh, just one year before Slovenia we had huge protests in Croatia, I remember. with tens of thousands of people on the streets every two days and so on. What happened? Uh, the, 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 we get rid of the Conservative government and now we got, as Slavo said, an even more radical government when it comes to economy. Uh, but. If we don't speak about Slovenia or Croatia, I would say on the first glance the situation we could quote of course Visconti or Lampedusa and say everything must change in order so everything can stay the same because you know in Tunisia what you got after the Arab Spring you of course got the the killing of Chokri Belaid and the huge crisis. What you got in Egypt is the Muslim Brotherhood and and the Arab Spring and so on. Uh, What you you got uh, in Slovenia is Janez Jansson with a human face and so on and so on. But what I would detect here, and I'm asking you if you would agree, is actually that all these movements failed uh, because a fear of power. You know, uh, the the, the Egyptian left failed because the Muslim Brotherhood on the terrain was much more successful, uh, giving uh, medical aid, uh, social welfare to the poor people, and you know, all the left was, was fetishizing in a way direct democracy and saying okay the elections will come but we don't care about the elections and you know when the elections came the Muslim brotherhood came I, I would say the same goes for the Wall
4: Street in a way as well. Can I just reply to yeah. this Croat Gustafi guy? <laughs> sorry. He's my good friend and uh, my, the only distinctive mark is that I all the time humiliate uh, good friends. Sorry. I, you're the, no, sorry quite seriously. No I agree with you but uh, first an interesting thing to know back to Egypt that you mentioned. No, But here I'm a little bit more optimist i hope we also agree here that you know it's nonetheless too simple to say this is this liberal western smug attitude so what was it worth to rebel against mubarak it's now even worse. No, it's not as simple as that. What my Egyptian friends are telling me is that nonetheless the social texture change. Let's call it naively the civil society is alive. You have have trade unions, women organizations, uh, students and so on. You know, the social body is not the same. There is a third force which is neither Muslim Brotherhood nor the old corrupted uh, Mubarak Mubarak nomenclatura. Uh, Second thing, now comes the, the key point. What you said, I totally agree that this focusing of economy doesn't mean we simply leave those ideological struggles aside, but I will try to be as precise as possible. It's precisely if we just... This is the usual attitude of left liberal enlightened intelligentsia. You know, for them big problems are gay rights and so on, and they silently pass over economy. But what we have to see is that if we formulate the problem in this way, then a lot of workers' unrest, of ordinary people, is canalized precisely by this fundamentalist right. So my point is that, if we, of course we should fight against fascism, blah blah, but if we do it just in this liberal, multicultural way, without connecting it to economic struggle, completely yeah, right, yeah, then we, we end up in a situation, because again, this is my big obsession, this is, I think, the central catastrophe of the last decades of European-American politics, of how the critical energy, which was the energy of right-wing, sorry, left-wing popular protest is now taken over mostly with the exception of last year's protests by, I mean, if you say today popular discontent, In United States at least it's more often than not uh, uh, a right-wing populist protest. And I was quite shocked when a friend convinced me that if you look in the United States at the conflict between state and civil society where as a leftist I'm on 99% I'm for the state there (laughs) because it's usually civil society usually means a, a, a small mobilization of right-wing tea parties, they want either some openly racist measures or whatever. So I think it's crucial, yes, I agree with you, gay marriage and so on, we should unconditionally insist on this. But we should we should nonetheless not forget about economy. We should have the two together, otherwise we will always remain this minority fighting for gay rights and so on, while the majority will do the scandalous things that you mentioned. We had the same shock already years ago in Slovenia, where there was a similar referendum, I think, if lesbian mothers should be allowed to get impregnated, blah blah blah, and we thought it's 50-50, and then the right-wingers won like... Uh, like uh, 75 to 25 percent and so on. But again, I claim that it's not that naturally people are so conservative. It's more that the way ordinary people perceive the situation, that they, the mistrust of the situation is overtaken by this ideological mobilization. This, this seems to me pretty crucial. Now the provocation. When you mentioned Lampedusa and so on, I will say now something horrible. I want to accuse here the, what I see as a hypocrisy of the liberal left intelligentsia who talk when you deal with immigrants as if, okay, they protest Italian measures. I claim it's hypocrisy in the sense that they know very well that the, what is their implicit demand? It's never clear to me. For example, those who protest the Lampedusa deaths. What is their idea? That they should just treat more, in a more human way, those who try to immigrate? Because if they don't, they want this, then this is nothing. Or do they want to simply open up the borders? Do they really mean it? I mean, because sometimes some radical leftists talk as if we should open up the borders. But are they afraid that this can lead to a catastrophe? And I'm not talking now as a potential right-winger. I'm just saying that the typical leftist hypocrisy is to take a problem like immigrants and just let's open up the situation there, everyone can come, and then what? Nothing would be changed. I
2: think they mean intervention in Africa.
4: Do they mean this? That's my problem. I am all the time asking them this.
2: Raising the aid to the developed world. Intervening directly because now we know it's from Libya that these immigrants are coming. And Uh, the European intervention in Libya created chaos
4: that now... uh, yeah, but these people mostly are not from Libya, I think. No, 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 a lot of people are from Libya. Oh, they are from, from, from Libya, people. I thought yeah. they come from a but but what
3: I wanted to add, you know what Francois Fillon, when he was yeah. Prime Minister, did after the intervention in Libya? What? He sent two planes of medical aid to Libya, and you know, on the first glance, it's a wonderful gesture of solidarity. Yeah. You know when what, he, what, he, what he said afterwards? We sent the medical aid in order to prevent the waves of new immigrants uh, to Lampedusa. So yeah, of course, they, uh, what the, what the Italian government did after the after the Arab Revolution, after Tunisia, they put navies around Lampedusa, not to save immigrants, but 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 actually to distract them. You know what they're they claiming now? Yeah. I don't know if you saw that yeah. that they want to implement drones in the Mediterranean Sea, like to control drones, where Controls like not the drones with bombs, like in. Pakistan. Okay, but
4: nonetheless, now I asked you. Okay, okay, we know all
3: these Carlos. What would you have done? in in Lampedusa. I wouldn't give the Nobel Peace Prize. Here here I I, I, I completely agree with you. You know there were some guys who were claiming we have to give the Nobel Peace Prize to Lampedusa. Did you know that? And that's exactly what you said, what you were criticizing the leftists who were uh, claiming some sort of more humanist approach. In a way, you wouldn't agree here with me, I would open the borders. Uh,
4: I don't know. know why,
3: because I think, you know, the European project, Europe as such, was from the beginning, it founded on multi-ethnicity, multiculturalism, influences from other. and I'm not speaking now, as you probably know, like a multiculturalist, but it was founded on diversity, you know, and I don't know if you were in Italy, it was two years ago, uh, in, a, in a small city called Luca, they tried, no, they didn't try, they, they banned all authentic uh, food. You know, they banned uh, kebabs, uh, falafel and so on. Then in Milan, where you have, I don't know, 2000 different restaurants and so on, they banned everything. And here come to my thesis. uh, Then you had uh, a famous Italian cook, who said, but you know, there is no such thing as authentic Italian food. You know, the tomato sauce came from Peru, and our noodles came from Marco Polo, who got it from China. So in a way, you know, this uh, this openness of Europe, yeah. and I'm really not speaking as a multi- as, as a naive multiculturalist, was actually the, 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 the foundation of Europe. And when we speak, you know, about Franco Berardi, Bifo speaks about it, that, that the European continent is dying because of old people. Why don't you get younger people? Of course, we have the unemployment of young people in Europe as well you know you could change the situation so in a way I, I i
0: would propose
4: not completely opening the borders but to rethink that you're already making the first step in the contract comp- because you know what's the problem for me like if we do what you say okay what i know this is pragmatic reasoning but what would have probably happened is that the moment there would be rumors we can enter europe this would probably explode into a large exodus And then what I fear is that an immediate, in an answer, explosion of right-wing populist parties opposing it. But you have it anyway. No, I, I, don't play with fate here. You have it anyway, but it can be much worse. You know, now you sound for me like those communists in '33 who, they said, who cares about Hitler even before we had it anyway, bourgeois dictatorship. Yes, but there is a slight difference, you know. No, but really, really, what I mean is, and then what? Then we will have Western Europe and Africa will stay the way it is or whatever. But okay, what would you do? I'm Sorry? not, not Avocatus Diablo, what would you do? I would, uh, the problem, first I am a pessimist as usual. I think that there simply is no simple solution here, but I would have been for what you mentioned, for some kind of coordinated, not so much aid, as even if violently imposed, chain, for example. Because in Africa we have such mega tragedies. Look at a country that I always mention like Congo. I mean, It's so rich in natural resources and so on. And people are starving and the state doesn't function and so on and so on. I mean, the first goal should be to make those states sustainable, I don't know how to, to somehow make them functional. Without that, but this is not to avoid a misunderstanding. I'm not saying primitive barbarian Africans, we should civilize them. I'm well aware that Congo, precisely the way it is now, a non-functioning state, it's fully integrated into world market precisely the way it is. Local warlords saying minerals for computers, you know, all the story and so on and so on. I'm, I'm just saying that, I'm just, what I'm just saying is that how Ambiguous these simple formulas are. For example, even with my very good friend Badiou, I had a small problem here, you know, his famous formula is against mm-hmm. for immigrants Kiet okay. is. The one who is here is from here. Like, to reject this, you know, we are authentic inhabitants here. But you know what then my Israeli friend Udi Aloni told me? Oh, wonderful! Israeli West Bank settlers would greet immensely this formula of you. That's what they are saying on the West Bank. They come and say, we are here, so we are from here, and so on. You know, And then immediately you get caught into these problems. What immigration is allowed, what not, not, and so on, and so on. My problem here is, uh, my problem here, if I may just continue is this one. When you mention this national identities, Europe, and so on, I agree with you if this was your implicit answer that we should not I agree with you, but I would be afraid to just limit this phenomena to Southern or even Southeastern Europe. Look, let's look at what in our ideological everyday perception is the most noble of Europe has socially, Scandinavian countries. Sorry to inform you, they have the same right-wing populism and it's very violent. Remember Gerd Wilders in, 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 in Holland, remember what in Sweden, anti-immigrant violence and so on and so on. So I think, unfortunately, it's not just here. And where I am a pessimist, is, okay, uh, is that I don't... My fear is the following one. I claim that this is my pessimist vision. And I like to be a pessimist, you know why? Because pessimists are the only happy people. You expect the worst and then usually things are not so absolutely bad and so you are happy. You see, you see, it's not so bad, you know. So uh, as a pessimist I would have said that some people are too naive when they project the image of global capitalism as nonetheless Fukuyama liberal enlightened and they see in these new anti-immigrant uh, nationalisms and so on a kind of primitive obstacle to it. No, I think what is now slowly emerging, and this is what worries me, is a capitalism which economically can be extremely brutal, liberal, but at the same time with strong racist ethnic identity, authoritarian state, and so on and so on. And what I fear is that this will gradually evolve
0: here.
3: I want to connect this to your
2: China mentioning and millions of people who live differently, let's say, than we do in in Europe. In the last couple of weeks, you were very actively read here in in England, your correspondence with Nadezhda Tolokonikova from PUSI.
4: Right. You know the joke about Berlusconi? I like it. I was told in Moscow that immediately after Pussy Riot scandal, uh, Berlusconi called Putin. Oh, I want to visit Moscow. <laughs> they asked him why. Because because I saw on TV screen this these posters. Free pussies, free pussies, you know. <laughs> sorry, go on. <laughs> that, just a multicultural reaction, sorry. <laughs> go on.
2: <laughs> no, but we... Now uh, Putin led Russia is is on the rise on all fronts. <laughs> we have seen several successes of uh, of Russia's in uh, international diplomacy. Yeah, 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 So, and Putin is doing increasingly well. Uh, so you seem, with your support of Nadezhda, mm-hmm. you seem to be waging a lost war. And my question is. The Russian autocratic model, yeah. or the Chinese autocratic yeah. model, or the Gulf states,
4: yeah. uh, which are the worst—they the, are new slave society. Yeah, the Gulf new states, slave yeah. Society.
2: No, but we are constantly being threatened by power holders here and those promoting neoliberalism, yeah, yeah. more austerity measures. If you don't like the alternative, yeah. is Russia, China, or? Of Gulf states. How can we on the left turn this against them, so that it's not used as a threat, but because they are so uh, authoritarian and slave society, we want Europe to be even better, and not to accept the neoliberal austerity measures, because there is worse. But how can we
4: uh, my, my answer is very simple, uh, uh, okay, but, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. but yeah. I agree. agree, yes, my answer is simply that, yes, that's my pessimism, in the terms of capitalism, okay. authoritarian ca- neoliberal capitalism is the future,
2: yeah, I have to tell them, if we go on doing what you are telling us to do, we will end up as Russia. Yeah, China yeah, yeah, So because of that, we have to change.
4: Yeah, yeah. I think I think there is a choice here. If, if only like the, my, the way I react to sincere liberals who is who are worried about freedoms and so on, I tell them, you know, only a more radical left can save you, if you just go on the way you do with neoliberal measures and so on, we will slowly approach the same, the same, the same authoritarian regime. Here I agree with a guy who is usually dismissed as a right-winger, but I appreciate him, Peter Sloterdijk, who said this 10 years ago. He said that Singapore is the future. This is where capitalism is moving. And I think this, if anything, gives us, uh, gives us a unique chance. Because we can sincerely say that, as I always repeat, this eternal marriage between capitalism and democracy is not as eternal as it may seem to be. Now it's clearly approaching a divorce. And that's what I found wonderful irony. My answer to Fukuyama is, listen, maybe you were right. Liberal capitalism won. But ex communist men ex communists turn out to be the best managers (laughs) of this. Which is my just the final point. This is my point. We are racist in a bad Eurocentrist way when we dismiss this capitalism with Asian various countries, as you know, yeah, because they are not so civilized, they are more primitive, they need some primitive uh, authoritarian ideological structure to function, but when I was recently on our communist fourth meeting in Korea, Sangiri Giri, my Indian friend, told me, no, that an, uh, uh, an investigation in India has shown that precisely this Young managers, whom you would have thought they are the tool of freedom, you know, young, successful, postmodern, digital guys, and so on. That in their private lives they tend to be much more fundamentalist, religious Hindu than otherwise. The problem is that the reference to uh, the ethnic values and so on is already totally transfunctionalized by global by global capitalism. It's totally wrong to see that if we are Western, permissive, liberal that we are somehow more more fit to practice digital capitalism. No, if we remain at the level of capitalist dynamics, we are lost. We have to, and here I would say this is my reason, maybe you again don't totally agree, that I think maybe it's worth fighting for European legacy. I was shocked when I I was... uh, in India to discover something and Sarah Giri gave me some documents. How? For example, concerning English language, do you know that the more you go up the social ladder, the Brahmin, they talk all the time about Hindu traditions, Indian, Indian, uh, English colonialism is threatening us. The more you go down, the more they are pro-English. The Dalits, the untouchables, all like English. Why? Because as a foreign language, it allows them an escape from all that Indian bullshit, hierarchic traditions, and so on, and so on. And I think that this the fundamental legacy of even capitalist modernity that we should accept? We have to lose our roots. We have to be wounded. Only in this way we can liberate ourselves. What do I mean by this? Just my formula and then I go on. The example that I use often, uh, that's why I admire Malcolm X. What did he do? You know, Malcolm X. X stands for we don't have a family name. We were torn out of our African roots and so on. Okay, now how do you react to this? You have two ways. One is like the cheaty TV series Roots, so let's go back and find our roots or whatever. Malcolm X's answer was exactly the opposite one. His reaction was not, let's let's try to recapture our African roots. No, his answer was, but this very mega-trauma, we being cut off from our roots, gives us a unique chance to be more modern than Europeans themselves, to build in this void a much more emancipatory universality and so on. And this is, I think, why I have a big mistrust of this idea Local cultures, traditions, and so on, are a defense against global capitalism. No, they are its perfect tool. The only way to break out of capitalism is to accept, fully endorse this deracination, losing roots, universality. This would be my modern definition of Marxist proletarian position, and so on, and so on.
3: here I would agree, uh, but uh, first, (laughs) 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 and I will go on. Uh, first, uh, uh, of all you mentioned, uh, the, both of you Boan and you, you mentioned Fukuyama several times. Uh, I, would, I, I would like to start with this and then answer your question actually, to, oh. be, to try to be not only pessimistic and pacifistic as you said, uh, but also uh, constructive. Uh, I had the opportunity, as uh, I think Slavo knows, uh, to, to, to meet uh, Francis Fukuyama in Paris, I think it was 2011. Uh, we had a two-hour conversation or something like that. And you know, at one point of time, uh, we, of course, spoke about uh, the end of history. Yeah. And I asked him, do you really believe uh, yeah. the end of history came? And you know what he said? Yeah. Uh, yeah. I don't believe in it anymore because of two reasons. Well, one um, is biogenetics. No 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 no, 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 no. Here he mentions only two yeah. other reasons. The first is right-wing extremism. He said this only one, uh, one month before Anders Breivik. Uh, massacre, yeah. uh, and here I agree actually with you that he still has this uh, fantasy that right-wing extremism is not part of the system, yeah, the yeah, yeah. of the system, but that it's something yeah. outside which yeah. can, you know, ruin yeah. capitalism yeah. as such. And the second, what he said, that was very interesting. Uh, I asked him something about Al Qaeda. Do you think Al Qaeda is still dangerous? And he said, uh, No, I think China is even more dangerous than Al Qaeda. Uh, What happened then is that I published this conversation uh, in a a famous Croatian, not so famous, but whatever, Uh, actually now Neoliberal Weekly. Uh, After the interview, uh, the Chinese ambassador in Croatia gave an even bigger interview for for, for this weekly uh, with the title uh, Francis Fukuyama is a banana man. Uh, which means uh, we in China call all those people who are from outside yellow, from inside white, we call them banana people. And of course here I would be on Fukuyama's side because it's a completely racist uh, argument uh, without any coherence and I would even go further and I would say actually that we should inverse these banana thesis or how to call it, I don't know, that what we have today is that Europe is from outside, I don't know what's the fruit or vegetable for it, maybe you can remember, from outside it's white, from inside it's yellow. I don't know if you have such a vegetable or not. What I claim to say it's actually the same what you said in several of your texts is that the marriage between democracy and capitalism is over. What we have in Europe is actually capitalism without democracy as well. Right. And here I can t- return to, to your question to be more constructive. What I think Uh, was created in the last two years and, of course, Mike Davis in his article in in The Left Review said at one point spring is the shortest season Uh, but then he deconstructed not in the the, the post-colonial way but he in a way criticised this thesis as well. I wouldn't say spring is the shortest season in that way. I think a lot of and I I, I really want to hear from you if you would agree actually that a lot of things were created maybe not in Slovenia maybe not in Croatia but what happened for example in Italy is that it's a theater which which is occupied by, by people who work in theater by actors by directors choreographers and so on in Greece you had uh, the potato movement, which sa- may sound uh, ridiculous, but for example, in Croatia, you could need a potato movement to get rid of this total rich guy, you know, it's it's a very simple idea. You don't sell the fruits to, to a distributor, to a shopping mall, but you sell it as in communist times. Remember, you know, when Roma people were coming to our apartments and screaming mm. "krumpira, krumpira." you know, mm. you sell uh, the vegetables directly to the people. Uh, you have, for example, okay, this is not a result of, of the of the movements, you mm. have mond- which is the fourth most powerful corporation in Spain which functions not as self-management as we knew it but as a sort of cooperative and last but not least of course we have Syriza in Greece. So what we have actually in Greece and of course Currently, there are some some people even criticise you that you are a social democrat, which I wouldn't agree, of course. Uh, they say SYRIZA is now a social democrat, uh, democratic party because they want to grab the power. But what you have in Greece is actually that really a powerful force was created after the occupations, unlike the Occupy Wall Street movement in Europe, unlike the, the yeah, occupations yeah, yeah. in Slovenia, unlike the occupations in Croatia. So to conclude, to answer your question is that what we have to do, what is to be done, is not only have. the the, the movements and not only have political parties. And I'm not fetishizing as many leftists do in Latin America, but but, but the the, the participatory budget in Porto Alegre was created not because only of a movement but because they had also a political party. Of course Lula and so
4: on afterwards. But But uh, would you be ready to go a step further and say not only movements, not only political parties, but but state power were possible? Of course.
3: No, that's that's what I'm saying. With all that, that comes. No, it can no, in another No, no, no. no. no, 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 no. It cool. Not with bullocks and all this stuff. No.
2: This is the last uh, comment uh, yeah. uh, I give you three minutes to make, because we want... But you to know, I about cite
4: metaphysical linear notion of time. <laughs> so, three minutes! No, but he's like you know Robert other fan with
3: hunger. I, it's no, very short, it's very but short. One the, of the, the arguments
2: and the articles in this book is that it's called Margaret Thatcher of the Left, where you advocate this idea that we need Margaret Thatcher and the Left, or you ask for a new master. So I find it very provocative and can you share uh, with us before we open the uh, floor to the audience?
4: Okay, nonetheless, if I can answer quickly, I agree with your fruit metaphor, no? What's the fruit? Uh, no, my f- fruit is watermelon, of course. What? Green and Green t- and red t- inside, t- no. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We pretend to be green, Mother Nature, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> <laughs> but we are red inside. <laughs> <You> <laughs> have Sorry? Then you have Jost Fischer and Con or no? No, they are traitors both.
5: They are are
4: unright melon, green, a little bit red, and then white in the middle still, so don't mention them. But nonetheless, I want to make clear one point. You know, with all, and we are right, criticizing radically Europe and so on, what I nonetheless insist, and we simply shouldn't forget it, is that even the tools with which the way we criticize Europe is come out of European legacy. For example, my friend Willem Çom, Somay from Turkey, who will defend this Friday his doctoral thesis, gives in his book a wonderful, in his thesis, uh, The Orient Doesn't Exist, a wonderful example how in Turkey you had in the last decades against the Kemalist enforced modernization, a movement of middle-class Muslim women who, provoking the official ban on being veiled, insist of having their right to wear veils. And he is right to point out that this is absolutely not simply a return to tradition. Of course, it is as to its content, it may appear, but the way they do it, it's a typical postmodern, even uh, identity politics stuff, you know, we want to be recognized, to show ourselves the way we want and so on and so on. And so uh, again, we should always be attentive to this, that, that Europe is always giving us at the same time the tools to criticize Europe itself. This is, I mean, But by Europe, I mean what? I mean precisely this universalist legacy and so on. And from here, I draw a radical conclusion. My conclusion is that the defenders of Europe today, the European right-wing anti-immigrants, I think we should not simply attack them for some vague universal, oh, you are too European, you don't see, we are part of a global world. No! Why to? to live to to them, why to allow them to monopolize the the word Europe? I would say that no, they are the true threat to Europe. Can you imagine Europe where people like, uh, name them, like Le Pen and Hyder and Berlusconi rule? This would no longer be Europe, if by Europe we mean what was great in Europe. So we should nonetheless fight for Europe, they are the true threat Europe. Don't, the, my point here is don't, don't, it's the same paradox that I like to repeat a propos for example family values. The usual left liberal reply is, uh, do you want to ask a question? Okay, but you are noted by the authorities. And <laughs> no, but, yeah, but the police. no, sorry. What I want to say is it's the same with family values. I hate when leftists just reply family values or reactionary Christian notion, we need open marriages, whatever. No, my answer to conservatives is, but who are you to dare to talk about family values? The neoliberal politics did more to destroy authentic family life than my God, than, than all the gay rights activists together or whatever, you know. That's uh, my point. So, but nonetheless, to go on with that, you masters. No, I was even shocked that my text uh, provoked such a violent reaction, because my first argument would be purely empirical. Show me one radical emancipatory movement, which didn't, which didn't didn't generate a leader figure. Like people told me in Venezuela it's wonderful, in cooperatives people taking over, blah, blah, blah. Yes, because you have Chavez up on the top there and so on. And what I claim is that what I try to do, maybe it's risky, I will try to do it now, is to formulate the notion of what, very naively, I don't go into high theory now, what I would have called an authentic master as opposed to authoritarian bad master. Bad master is the one who gives orders, who deprives you of your freedom, no? The bad master is who tells you, work uh, like ora et labora, work and pray, pray, celebrate me, or Erdogan in Turkey. Wonderful, I read in Bülent Somae's thesis. You know what was it's wonderful? The electoral slogan of, of Erdogan's, this Islamist party. Uh, shop and pray. It's wonderful, like consumerism plus a little bit of Muslim identity and so on. No, so authentic master, sorry, the fake master is like Stalinist. They know better than you what is good for you and they are ready to enforce it on you. But for me, an authentic master is the one who just gives you a kick to return yourself to, like, even with all the horrors of cultural revolution, I always found touching, you know, that famous message from the beginning of cultural revolution when Mao wrote to students, you have the right to rebel. That's for me the message of a true master. You have, the true master simply tells you, you can. You can do it, you can do the impossible. And I claim for reasons that I will not go into theory now that somebody has to kick you from outside. I don't believe in autonomous subjectivity in the sense of, you know, you become aware of your freedom. No! Because when people claim I call for a new authority master, I tell them, your mistake is that you think that in our society, which is allegedly without masters, that you are free. But we are not free. Our paradox today is precisely our consumerist individualism, however we call it, it's a kind of a conformist, resigned, cynical blindness. And for me, again, the message of a master is just this one, and this is what an authentic master does. Just the message is, you can do it. Do it. It just calls you up to your freedom. What happens after? I don't know. Many masters then go crazy and begin to believe that they are really masters, so we liquidate them. I find no problem in that, but you know what I mean. My pessimism is in this, that I don't believe in this liberal notion of autonomous freedom, you become aware of your freedom. No, liberal, individualist freedom, I will be very radical here, is precisely the very form we experience our non-freedom today and that's why if i may make another jump that's why i find like uh, edward snowden's revelations so important it's not simply anti-americanism i am well aware that for example uh, that china is much worse at the level of how free you feel than united states i mean But China has cynically one privilege. No one there even thinks that they are free. Everyone knows. You have a Politburo standing... You know who is the boss? The the importance of Snowden is that he showed us how there can be an extraordinary level of control regulation in a country where you are simply not aware of it, where you simply think that you are that you are free, you don't see it, and we can be controlled. That's, that's, that, that's the important of this. So no, I'm not calling for new Stalin or whatever. I just don't think that late, my God, this horrible term I will use, late capitalist, bourgeois, individualism, narcissistic subjectivity. I don't think that this form of freedom is enough. I think that, that you have to be, as it were, kicked out of it. You need an external.
2: And on that note, external, the audience, students,
4: have the right to ask. But now I talk as a Stalinist, but we speak for them. We know them, we already said. Why listen to them? It will just introduce introduce confusion, you know. We already explained to them what is good for them. Okay, sorry.
2: We can uh, not answer some questions over yeah, there, right? <laughs> uh over there, maybe. Well, the guy here is
4: trying for a long time, maybe. And to be safe, we begin as centrists. And then we move left and right, you know. So, yeah. Okay, so um, don't
1: you think that the main Who, error me, the me or him? Uh, you. Yeah. Okay. Then. Don't you think that the main area of the left nowadays... Is just focusing on the political correctness and tolerance rather than uh, the economic situation, because like I think most people don't really care and they're mostly neutral if like as regards the gay marriages and so on. But th- what they care is that they they're un- unemployed. So given that the left is focusing on the uh, gay rights and minorities' rights, they don't really like you know you know what I mean. Like yes. the left is. Just going into the, uh, the wrong direction. The, the, the emphasis is way wrong.
0: Uh, more questions out there. Uh, okay. uh, I think I can talk sort about of, uh, <coughs> um, I, 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 I have a great interest
5: in a country which perhaps feels even more peripheral than the former um, yeah. uh, uh, republics of, of
2: Yugoslavia. That's Uh huh.
4: speak with Bulgarians about Macedonia. Yes. <laughs> there, how, how do they relate to that? That's for me always the traumatic point. Do they admit the autonomy or do they treat Macedonians their own, as their own subspecies? <laughs> No, they also have their own small very very quick you here I totally agree it's like it should be bombed I mean there I would support NATO bombing have another question
2: so that here will be
1: <laughs>
0: Thank you, uh, Kostas Duzinas yesterday during a book presentation here in London referred to three main factors that uh, must to be met in order to in order to see an overthrow to, to you know, to become real in a political overthrow, the first factor is a strong uh, political desire. The second factor is uh, a very concrete, radical uh, political object and the third factor during uh, according to sorry what do you mean by
4: object program
0: or what a p- program political platform, and of course a party yeah yeah, okay in the end. And um, the third factor is a catalyst that is going to, you know, is going to work in order to, to, to help the other two factors uh, to to see this overthrow to become real. So, uh, according to your point of view, let and uh, Slavoj as well. What is this catalyst for you uh, in order to see an overthrow in a national, but most important, uh, most importantly, in a European level?
4: Behind you, there was another question. Fuck you, you said three questions. Now it's the fourth. Yeah. Yes. Just. Just
2: because the microphone was here. Yeah, yeah,
4: yeah, this opportunist. it's opportunist. So, social democratic excuses, yes. Okay.
5: Yeah. So this could be for the whole panel. Um, you said uh, economy, We have to look at the economy, and I would say this is the only way you can make sense of any of these questions. Uh, uh, you say austerity doesn't make any sense, uh, which, which is true, uh, because it ends up undermining the stability it's meant to prop up. But it's also clearly necessary for states to maintain their credit rating so that they can maintain quantitative easing. And so the crisis doesn't happen again. I mean, it, all, all of these political questions can sort of be pushed aside, I think, a bit when you have the, the fact that um, over the past 40 years, state debt to GDP ratios have risen pretty consistently, um, even during boom times. And uh, like in tw- from 20, 2007 to 2011, US public debt rose from 62% to 100% of GDP. So what do you have to say about that? I mean, austerity is necessary, but what, what's the future? Yeah. Okay,
4: uh, you begin. <laughs> no, no,
2: no, that, that, that
4: was, you know,
3: you say when, when you have to pay lunch, then you say, you begin, and then I say, no, 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 please, Slava, you. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, but, but I, I will pay the lunch. Anyway, uh, the first question, very short answer, yeah. yes, because that, that was the thing we were speaking all the time about, you know, yeah. how political correctness and all these cultural identities and everything is actually, you know, if you don't think about political economy, then then you don't have you you, you don't have the the right critique anymore. But on the other hand, as I said, I think today we are in such dark times that we have to take care also of of other problems. Uh, The second question uh, regarding Bulgaria and cultural heritage. Uh, here I must be a bit, uh, you know, <laughs> skeptical and cynical as well, you know, yes, Serbia has a great cultural heritage, but you know what's the product, the product is the rehabilitation of, of the Chetnici and so on. And I don't know if one would agree, you know, of the collaborators of fascism. Uh, yes, Croatia has a great cultural heritage but you know it was uh, the country, uh, one of the uh, ex-republics of Yugoslavia which had the, the biggest rate of destroyed anti-fascist monuments. So you have no anti-fascist cult- cultural heritage anymore. You can Don't add. Let yeah.
2: me add because I was yeah, yeah. Uh, in, in Dubrovnik uh, this summer and I was glad to read this uh, review recently again which suggested people not to go to Dubrovnik. It's a beautiful place, but it is destroyed by overdevelopment and particularly these uh, uh, neoliberalist, monopolist, consumed, todo rich uh, type of guys. You have four kinds of shops. You think you are in a labyrinth. You go, there are three shops, and then suddenly the same shop comes again And uh, in Dubrovnik. It's all in the hands of four people. You cannot get anything handmade or produced locally in the whole city of Dubrovnik. It's a torture of neoliberal capitalism. So, you know, this heritage is a uh, two-sided sword, uh, so
3: to say. No, in a way, it's a tool to get more money. On the other hand, it's a tool for, for a, legitimi- a le- yeah. legitimization of, of different sorts of uh, <laughs> whatever. But, but, but the, 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 I will come back to the catalyst. Actually, I will ask you a question because obviously me and Slavo weren't there at, at our friend's uh, debate. Uh, what was the, 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 the answer of Kostas? Who is the catalyst? You didn't ask him. Huh? You didn't ask him. Why? No, no, he didn't answer. So we will ask him. I didn't Social forces. But as I said, I think without social forces, without a political party and a party without social forces, that was the biggest mistake of the, of the left movement, I think, in the past 20 years. Uh, the, the answer behind that, then I will pass the floor to, to, to Slavo, I think cre- the ideology of credit rating is pure bullshit, you know. Uh, you, you need to get a better credit rating in, in order to get an even bigger debt. <laughs> and our friend Maurizio Lazarato has written a lot about Here. it. And you know, what the the, the, the biggest banks in the U.S. Be- before the financial meltdown had the best credit rating just a few days before the financial meltdown. So I think the credit rating, and if you if you read books about the history of credit rating agencies, you will see they rule the world actually with with the credit rating, yeah. and that it's pure ideology which doesn't make it doesn't have any. any any connection with the GDP and so on, I mean it's like statistics when they speak about the GDP doesn't make any connection with the real lives of people in,
4: in, in some country. Okay, very briefly. I will try it. Yes, uh, I agree this point about uh, 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 credit. I, I would even say that what I like in La, uh, it's yeah, his book on the rise of the indebted man, is that he shows very well, and we should always be aware of it. This is a wonderful example of credit, all the credit problem of the psychoanalytic notion of superego, where, you know, it's uh, like when they... Put pressure on you all the time, repay your debt, repay your debt. They don't really want you to repay your debt. The, the whole point is to keep you in an internal, under an internal pressure. It's, an, it's a, an, an ideal tool of permanent control, slavery and so on and so on. You know uh, this uh, debt, uh, controlling how are you uh, meeting your debt and so on and so on, and what Lazarato also does. I will develop this in my new book, referring to him. It's how, uh, it's even at a personal level. We
3: have it here already.
4: Maybe. At do, and Dex Dex Dex. Maturato, yeah. may, oh, really? Oh yeah. my God! <laughs> okay. Whatever. <laughs> so, what I like is this idea of how, even at a personal level, today precisely the fact that all of us are more or less indebted enables a wonderful ideological operation that all of us, you know, in old capitalism, Marxists, some of us were bourgeois, some of us were workers or whatever, but we were all formally equal as free citizens and so on. Now, in the latest stage of ideology, we are all capitalists. You know, in one way, uh, the key term here of this ideology is self-entrepreneurship. The idea is that, let's say, you are a father of a family, and you borrow money, and then you can decide, will you invest it into your health, into your son's or daughter's education, or whatever. The idea is that you are here dealing as a small capitalist, that through allocating your debts, you are basically at a smaller level, the same as a big capitalist, you know. So, you see, I'm simplifying it now, but you know, the idea is then, what is the problem? There are no workers. We are all capitalists. We are just investing differently, and so on and so on. It's a, it's a wonderful. I, mean, I just add
3: two things to this. Yeah. You know, you were like the first thing when I was one month ago in India. You know, they, they still have this good old colonialist habit that they put the newspapers uh, under your door in the hotel but room. But here I am
4: for colonialism. Yeah, What's here I as yeah, well yeah.
3: because you can see what the enemy I- is doing. So I got the newspaper at 7 in the morning and anyway, yeah. it was the daily edition of Times of India. And on the cover page there was only one, one motto. Every Indian can be an entrepreneur. Yes, it's exactly yes, the thing yes, what you are saying. Yes. And the other point, I don't know if you, you've seen what, what the King of, 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 of Holland was, was saying, I think it was two, day, uh, two, 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 two months ago. So he gave an, a, a, an official address of the government on the national television to the Dutch people and he said the welfare state is dead. And what we have instead of the welfare state is the participation society. What it means is that we we, we cannot rely on the state anymore. Everyone has to be, as you said, a small capitalist. If you want uh, healthcare, you have to buy it. If you want social security, you have to buy it and so on. So I think these two examples actually
4: uh, confirm what you just said. And again, the wonderful thing is that this way of being deprived of your freedom is then presented to you as a new freedom like you know it's not just decided by state your welfare but you are free to choose do you want more welfare security do you want more amusement or whatever yes speaking about what you said the, the first question just briefly political correctness tolerance left i agree with you i would just like to add your thing that uh, one thing that you know as I often repeat, the very term tolerance is suspicious here for me. Because I don't think it's a term we should use. Let's not, you know, I find it very suspicious how today every anti-sexist, anti-racist struggle is automatically translated into the terms of tolerance. I don't find this... Uh, necessary. Let's take a big example, we all agree he was a great guy, Martin Luther King. I always repeat it, go to the web, to the net, and download his speeches and put that search, find, whatever. And you will see he never uses the term tolerance. It would have been humiliating for me to say what, we blacks want more tolerance from white people or whatever. It's ridiculous. Racism is translated into tolerance at a very precise moment, when economy is depoliticized, you are not allowed to talk about class issues. So all of a sudden, instead of talking about legal economic conditions of racism, it, become a, it becomes kind of pseudo psychoanalytic topic. You know, why don't I tolerate you? What trauma of myself did I project onto you? So let's do collective <laughs> psychoanalysis or what? Here I am definitely anti-Freudian. If this is it, you no, know? just this point. Bulgaria. Yes, I agree with your line. You know, I wouldn't put Bulgaria in such a uh, desperate position. What I'm always trying to think along the lines of line of political thinkers that I like, from ancient Chinese legalists to uh, to Malcolm X, is to see things which may appear as weakness as an advantage. The way you describe Bulgaria. It can be a bad thing, but maybe it it gives them much more freedom to reinvent themselves. Because I think that, again, uh, the way we can boast also with Slovin's Middle European traditions, all that. But I think this doesn't help us a lot. Maybe it's even... uh, uh, an obstacle, but I cannot resist, that's my evil nature, to tell you, maybe you know it, a wonderful story about Bulgaria. I read two, three years ago, it's not about Bulgaria, it's about Western European racism, really. I, you know, when Slovenia became member of European Union and some other new states, some British newspaper did the opinion poll about West, uh, uh, among British population, which are the features that they identify a new member of European Union with. You know what were the two features most popular in identifying Uh, Bulgaria and I like it. The first one is, no, don't they have, that's the myth, I'm talking about racism now, don't you have in Bulgaria those people who are 100 years old but because they drink the right yogurt they still can fuck and so on and all that, so that's the one thing about Bulgaria, the other is, you remember in the 70s or where that well-known incident where a Bulgarian umbrella, you know, Everyone remembers Bulgaria, so I would say to Bulgarian and French, "Why don't you start to produce those poisoning umbrellas and so on?" <laughs> <laughs> Sorry?
2: And, and the yogurt, yogurt revolution,
4: yes, and umbrellas. No, but I'm quite serious. Maybe you know, all these countries—I mean, really—big uh, tradition can be can be a burden. And what appears as a victim, what can appear as a weakness, can also always be. Uh, can also always be a, a resort. The only thing I have a problem is, wh- wh- when you mention this anti-Turkish resentment, No, it got me into a lot of trouble with Turkish leftists when I emphasized, you know, my youth, our youth. okay, I'm older than you, I remember it, how we were taught again and again, Turks, occupiers, terrorizing us, Slavic nations, and so on. But if you look closely, it was much different. You know, like, according to all normal standards, Turks were relatively, 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 uh, relatively easy, soft occupiers. Like, they never crushed the Christians. You just, I think you had to pay a little bit more, as in Muslim states, a little bit more of 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 a tax or whatever, but it was relatively open. I mean, one thing, I always quote it, can give you the message I want to deliver. Only
2: in comparison to West. European empires. It was oppression, it was... uh, But they would never extinct the Christians like they did with Jews and Muslims in Spain or France or China. That's what I want to say. Yes,
4: And you know what's so interesting? That when did the Turks commit their big crimes? That is to say, uh, Armenia and then Kurds. It was modernization. Yes, when they wanted to become a Western modern nation state. So, that's uh, an interesting point here. Uh, so, uh, then, uh, about, uh, uh, about a catalyst. Uh, you know what I would have said here? Uh, I always believe how do you start a process of change? You cannot predict it in advance. I don't think a catalyst can be an a priori category. For example, okay, it didn't develop into a big change, but it was some kind of protest movement in Turkey. Uh, uh, Taksim Square, Gezi Park, you know. You know what was the motto, I was told there? The motto was dignity. And this dignity was directed specifically, you know, the big demand was not just end of uh, capitalist uh, corruption, end of this, end of whatever. No, the motto was Erdogan has to go. Why? Because his attitude. For example, uh, uh, Erdogan, when at some round tables he saw someone smoking, he approached him, took out of his mouth the cigarette, extinguished it and patted him on his shoulder and said, don't do that, it's not good for you and so on. I mean, this was his general approach, you know, telling people you had to have at least uh, three... But people.
3: here we have some real story. When, when your son wanted to smoke, what did you do? What? What did I do? You I don't, don't remember what you told me. You gave him the cigarette. To try how bad it is, and then he never smoked again.
4: No, uh, it worked when my older son was six years old. Yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, I, even, I even taught him that he should go to the store and tell it's for my dad, and so on. But I did a good thing because again, it was so. Ah di- uh, no, uh, 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 never till till he was 14. When under the pressure of uh, colleagues and so on, he started again to smoke. But I did succeed for. I did succeed for a... No, 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 to tell you a dirty private story, my children, I educate them in my way, like, three days ago it happened. I was mad at my younger son, and I told him, you know, in the Serb proverb, you know, your body smarter, like, let the dog fuck your mother. You know what was his answer? A dog already did that and I am the result. (laughs) Like that I am a dog and so on. That's Marxist education, okay, but let's go on. No, the catalyst problem. You know what I claim here, that you cannot... So again, the catalyst was not simply what they wanted to do with that Gezi Park and so on. But it was, I think, authentic revolutions always start at this. The catalyst can be a certain law which is not popular, a certain person and so on, and then a certain dynamic started. And if those empower and intelligent, but most of the time they are not, they immediately concede the point and prevent the explosion, you know, like you have them, okay, okay, you are right, he should step down and so on, and it's over, because, and I think that Let me give you another example. People often ask me why am I such a revisionist that I even still have certain sympathy for Obama. Ah, I claim, again, I repeat myself, maybe some of you know the story, I think that his healthcare, universal healthcare program, I know the result is a total compromise, nothing, but obviously he steered up an incredibly crucial debate, which rendered visible the limits of American notion of freedom. Which is why, are you aware what a trauma his program is for? Are you aware that American Republican right was ready to stop practically to ruin the entire state? You see, this would be a good catalyst, because the true art of politics, I claim, is you don't start with the big ace, the big revolutionary program, you start with a small point. And then it triggers an avalanche, and so on and so on. And the art is to find the proper tiny point. Like in in Europe, we consider this usual universal healthcare. In America, is and can I tell you another story which I like here, very short one? Yeah. From. From Greece. I know. I noticed it. My Nazi instinct, racial identification, work well. Yeah. Because uh, uh, what I'm saying is that uh, uh, look. I discovered a wonderful example to see what Americans don't see. You know the biggest American iconic pop song, Frank Sinatra's My Way, I'll Do It My Way. But do you know that this song is the American version of a French song, which is called Comme d'habitude, as usual. Isn't it irony that what in France is just as usual, stupid American think it's my way, individual, and so on. What Americans don't see is to be really able to do it my way. Quite many things have to function comme d'habitude, you know. Like, what they don't see is that. Really functioning democracy and dense social organization are not mutually exclusive. They are totally wrong when they think, for example, in totalitarianism there was too much planning, not enough initiative. Are they crazy? Uh, I read some good books on Soviet economy under Brezhnev and discovered, beneath the surface of total planning, it was totally chaotic, nothing functioned, you know, like you are in a co- state company producing, uh, table, for example, chairs, tables. You waited for, according to the plan, a certain company should send you, should send, should send you wood, uh, cut it, wood, and so on. It doesn't work, so you have to improvise, and so on. O- on the contrary, Soviet economy was extremely chaotic. So I think that what we should be aware of is that we need to be effectively free. Free in the sense you do what you want, you walk around, you feel safe. We need an extremely dense organization and that's the problem with Americans. They still think that to be free is to walk in the wild west with a gun or whatever you know. So uh, again you see in United States raising a thing like that which maybe for us is self-evident can be can can be a catalyst to maybe trigger some... I don't know where it would have happened, but it would have totally changed the American political identity. And in different countries it's different. Like, for example, and that's my, when they accuse me here, social democratic revisionism of what? What I spoke with uh, Tsipras is that uh, not you should limit yourself to social democratic problem, but that because of the specific situation of Greece, the immense state clientelism in the set. In Greece, to really create a normal functioning state of law, sorry, a uh, uh, functioning state where laws are obeyed and so on, means a total revolution, a much more radical revolution than, than elsewhere and so on. Which is why Tsipras is a wise guy. He always opposed simple anti-European rhetorics. He has no illusions here. It's interesting to know this that it is new democracy, which, the way I saw it, you remember, maybe the last electoral summit in the last election of new democracy, and I remember there, new democracy, an old lady shouting, "Who are the Germans to tell us what to do?" They were still playing football with uh, human heads, while we already had ice kilos and sophocles and so on. You know, the, while uh, Tsipras is well aware that. Greece also needs Europe. And Tsipras has no illusions about looking for help elsewhere. Now I will tell you, I hope I will not embarrass again Tsipras. But he told me that representatives from Russia came to him and told him, okay, if you split with Europe, we can help you. But they gave him a detailed list. Telecom, this, that, what they want to buy. Plus, of course, they wanted a nice island for 99 years, military base. As to the Chinese, Uh, You must know that it's horror, the Chinese bought the port of Piraeus, and they are there more brutal than any Western company would have dared to do. So again, or in Turkey, a simple call for multicultural tolerance, like admitting Armenian genocide, Kurds, and so on. In Turkey it means a revolution, and so on. So you see, that's crucial. Capitalism is uneven. And sometimes, you know, like And this is why I support Nadezhda and the the pussies. (laughs) That's their message and which is why they are less and less popular in the West. They are not the same as Kasparov and that liberal critics of... No, they are not saying we are primitive in Russia, we need to join Western liberal capitalism. No, their problem is precisely that... that, I'm sorry, this is not... No, 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 They what they are fully. I'm very sorry. What they are fully aware is that Russian capitalism, the way it is, it fits world market. That to bring true democracy to Russia, it's not enough to play the West against Russia. That the West is in a way co-responsible for it, and this is why. This is what, so, you see, my point would have been catalysts are different here and there. But we should always be aware that a true process of change never begins with a big goal, communist revolution or whatever. You start with something small and then you get it. If we really want this, we have to go a step further and a step further and so on. And
2: this is a great uh, final uh, message. I want to uh, thank once again our guests, uh, Srećko Horvat and Slavoj Žižek, and to all of you. for.. Uh, you. One
4: second. If I can, I don't have time, but I would love to, to reply to this leaflet. Just two things. In second paragraph, they impute to me some kind of a peace project. My God. Me and peace project not. And another one, at the end, they said, I undoubtedly have noble intentions. No, I don't have noble intentions.
2: (laughs) Thank you. This was live streamed, uh, this event was live streamed and you can see it again.
3: Uh, if